passage this morning begins in Genesis chapter 2, in the last verse, and continues through Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, through Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, as we continue our verse-by-verse study through Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And at this time, if you are physically able, I'd ask you to stand with me as I read for us this passage of Scripture. Beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You may be seated. This past Wednesday night, during our prayer meeting, a particular family was brought to our attention is having special need of prayer. The family was recently vacationing down at the beach when the man unexpectedly had an allergic reaction to citronella candles. We were told Wednesday night that he died, leaving behind his children and a wife. He was only in his 40s, if I remember correctly. And when we think of his wife and we think of those dear children trying to come to grips with what has suddenly happened in their lives, when we think of them now trying to find some means to support themselves, we cannot help but say that this was a tragedy. And this family does need our prayers. This past week, a cyclone struck the countries of India and Bangladesh, causing millions of people to still today be marooned without access to food, without access to clean water. Hundreds have already died. and That number is expected to be in the thousands when all is said and done. And this too is a tragedy. And these people need our prayers. Tragedy is all around us. Statistically, we know that this week alone, several thousand abortions took place in our nation. Statistically, we know that by the time I'm done preaching this morning, several thousand children around the world will have died from hunger and preventable diseases. Friends, I want us to understand that these seemingly disconnected tragedies are in fact not disconnected at all. 
for these tragedies and every other tragedy that this universe has ever known throughout all of human history have their roots in a single tragedy that took place many thousands of years ago in a place called the Garden of Eden. It was there in that garden that the tragedy of tragedies occurred. Here was the great upheaval of creation. Here was where a good, stable, peaceful, well-ordered universe was altered and injected with a virus called sin, which continues to this day to bring disorder and chaos and pain and death and will continue to do so until this earth is finally destroyed. Here was the great earthquake of which every other tragedy has been an aftershock. There is no other passage of Scripture more devastating than the passage we are looking at today. There are those who read these verses as some quaint little tale about how this man and woman lost it all. But friends, this is no tale. This is history. And this is not disconnected from us. These were our first parents and the perfect perfect creation that they knew we were meant to know as well. The eternal life that they could have had, the blessings, the fellowship with God, these were all ours as well. Eden was to be our home. The perfect earth was to be our home. But the sin of our first parents was the sin of the whole human race. The judgment that was upon them is the judgment into which we are born. Their death is our death. Brothers and sisters, your body is going to die because of Genesis chapter 3. That's why. And your soul was born dead, stillborn, because of Genesis chapter 3. We are looking this morning at the disaster of all disasters with a casualty count numbering in the billions. Now, part of what makes this tragedy so devastating is how good things were beforehand. It's not as if things were just okay before the fall, and after the fall, things got worse. No, before the fall, God had blessed man beyond our wildest imaginations. Man had a purpose. Man had a beautiful home, a garden more gorgeous than the gardens at the Biltmore Estate. Man was surrounded by fruit-bearing trees, docile animals, a pure river running straight through the garden. Man had strength and abilities. Man was given a, a wife. Eve was given a husband. And they were to have happy fellowship. They were given the ability to bear children who would bring joy to their hearts. Children who would never disobey. And most of all, Adam and Eve had fellowship with God. They could walk with God. They could learn from God. They could treasure Him as He treasured them. Most mornings, I go over a little catechism with Jonathan where I ask him questions and he gives me answers. And one of the questions that I ask him a lot of mornings is this, in what condition did God make man? He's smiling because he knows the answer. The answer of the catechism is, He made them holy and happy. 
This was the original state of the human race. Holy and happy. They were pure. They were innocent. They were God-centered. And they were filled with joy. Verse 25 tells us that the man and his wife were both naked. And they were not ashamed. And of course they were not ashamed. There was nothing to be ashamed about. Their bodies were just as God had designed them to be. They were to be used in exercising dominion over the earth. They were to be employed in joyful and creative work, bringing forth further order and beauty to God's creation. They were magnificently designed by God so that the man's body and the woman's body complemented one another. And in their union, they could fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. All was holy. All was good. All was glorifying to God. So what happened? Well, there was a covenant that God established with His dear children when He created them. We saw that last Sunday morning. As long as Adam and Eve would enjoy God's gifts and trust Him and obey Him, they and their descendants would be blessed forever. And obeying would not be hard because God only gave them one command. Do not take from this one tree. It's the only one that's off limits. If Adam and Eve chose to take from that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sought to gain knowledge and wisdom apart from God, rather than learning from God, they would lose it all. They would be separated from Him and receive His righteous punishment of death. Enter the serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree that is in the garden? What is this serpent? First we know that he is a beast of the field. One of God's created animals. The text is very clear about that. Second, we are told that he was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field. Our English word, crafty, is usually taken as a negative thing, but this word in the Hebrew does not have negative connotations. It could be both positive or negative. The word could be translated as cunning or shrewdness or even prudence. This word is used time and time again in the book of Proverbs as a good thing, as something desirable for God's people. Even Jesus taught us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Whatever this creature was, its craftiness was not something evil. It was a part of the way God had created it. It was a part of God's good universe, which at the end of chapter 1, or at the end of verse 3, chapter 2, or where is it? Yes, the end of chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. That everything included this creature with its craftiness. Yet Satan, who is not a created animal, a fallen angel, saw this crafty creature and appears to have thought that it was an appropriate one for him to use to accomplish his evil purpose. Now what kind of creature the serpent was in the beginning, we do not know. 
Remember, it's not until after the fall, when God pronounces the curse on the serpent, that it becomes a snake slithering on its belly. Most of us hate the very sight of snakes. And most snakes are not too fond of us. But this was not a snake. Not yet. This was something else. Some people think it was a very beautiful creature. Other people think that it was a dragon-like creature. Ultimately, we do not know what kind of creature it was. Just all we know is it was a beast of the field that was crafty. But what do we make of the fact that this creature could talk? That it could open its mouth and speak to Eve? Well, there are those who want to make a lot out of this. They point out that Eve does not appear to be surprised at all when the serpent starts talking to her. And so they take this to mean that all animals talked before the fall. That this was the norm. They say that just as the curse caused man to demean himself so that we are now less than what we used to be, so also the curse has affected animals and they are now more unintelligent than they used to be. Many who think this way have been affected by C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia in which human beings reign as kings and queens over a land. They reign joyfully, exercising dominion over a world of intelligent, talking animals. Now there are others who would dismiss all of that out of hand. They would suggest that the reason this serpent could talk is because Satan was working in it. Indeed, some think this is simply Satan taking on the appearance of the animal. They suggest that the reason the Bible doesn't record Eve being surprised by this animal talking is simply because the passage is trying to get to the point and not get lost on side things. Well, which is it? Here's an answer I can give you with 100% confidence. I have no idea. What we do know, however, is that it is Satan that was at work in the serpent. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, speaking of Christ's victory over Satan at the cross, says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so we can say with no hesitation that it is in fact Satan that Eve is encountering here. Let me ask you a question. What do you think of when you hear me speak of Satan? If I'm not being careful and biblical in my thinking, I'll picture a large red beast with horns and glaring eyes, a pointed goatee, a long red tail holding a pitchfork. You know where I got that image? From a Bugs Bunny cartoon that I watched when I was a little kid. I can tell you all about it. Bugs Bunny drops a piano on Yosemite Sam and it knocks him through the ground of the earth and he goes into hell and there's the devil reigning triumphantly in hell. And it's, it was a cartoon. It was silly. Yet the sad thing is a lot of people still believe that that's really what Satan is like. He's some silly, fictional character. Most people today don't really believe in Satan According to surveys done here in the United States, the majority of Americans and nearly half of so-called evangelicals deny that Satan is a real being. It's been said that the greatest trick that Satan ever pulled was to convince people he didn't exist. 
After all, who's afraid of something that isn't real? Kids maybe, but not grown-ups. And if Satan isn't real, there is no reason for me to be alert. There's no reason for me to be on guard and ready to resist his attacks. It is in Satan's best interest for us not to believe he exists. It's because we no longer believe in Satan that we can talk about him so flippantly. I talked about this at the conference we did uh, last fall on the cross. I mentioned a song, perhaps you've heard of it, Charlie Daniels' song, The Devil Came Down to Georgia, in which Satan duels a character named Johnny at fiddle playing. Now that devil sounds like a real devil to be scared of, doesn't it? Of course not. Oh, we make jokes about the devil. It's not uncommon for us to call someone a cute little devil or even to see someone who has tattooed a little devil on their skin. He occasionally makes an appearance at Halloween parties and in ridiculous Hollywood movies. If we only believed the truth of what the Bible says about Satan, we would be much more serious and much more somber when we speak of him. The Bible is not at all unclear about this fallen archangel, which is what he appears to be from Revelation 12. He makes his first appearance here in Genesis 3 in the form of a serpent, and he reappears again and again throughout the Bible's pages until we reach the end of Revelation. You simply cannot deny the existence of Satan without doing violence to the Word of God. Did you hear me, church? If he's not real in Genesis 3, if this is some imaginary creature, then what do we do with all that we've been learning? If this is a fictitious serpent, then are Adam and Eve real? Is the garden real? Is the fall real? Is the curse real? Or did Jesus Christ die for nothing? What about Matthew 4, when Satan comes and tempts Jesus three times in the wilderness? Is that an imaginary Satan? If that's not a real account, then the Gospels cannot be trusted and what they say about Jesus cannot be trusted. Friends, you cannot deny the existence of Satan without ultimately denying the existence of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and ultimately losing all of Christianity as well. It's important that we as Christians not be ignorant about what the Scriptures say concerning Satan. For he is our adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Ephesians 5.12 Can you say with Paul, Concerning Satan, we are not ignorant of his designs. 2 Corinthians 2.11 The vileness of Satan is revealed in his names. He is called Satan, which means the adversary. He is called the devil, which means the slanderer. He is called Beelzebul, which has its roots in the name of the pagan god Baal. 
He is called the prince of the power of the air, referring to his authority in the spiritual realm, the ruler of this world, referring to his sway in planet earth, and the evil one, referring to the essence of his character. The clearest passage about the fall of Satan and his demons, I think, is 2 Peter 2.4, where we read that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Since the day of that fall, Satan has worked not only to bring about the fall of man, but to oppose every purpose and work of God. Satan's motivation is a burning, fierce hatred for God and all righteousness, and his desire is to bring all who bear God's image to rebel against him. He even went after Jesus and did all he could to get the Son of God to defy his Father. Make no mistake, Satan cannot force anyone to sin, but his tactics to persuade us to sin are innumerable. At Satan's disposal are lies, deception, murder, temptation, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, and a thousand other ploys which he uses to seek to destroy God's glory and our joy. We not only need to know our enemy, you need to know that it is good and right for you to imitate your father in hating this enemy. Christians are to be a people of love, but not towards Satan, not towards evil. Our God is holy and He loves all that is good, but His holiness also means that He hates all that is evil. Jesus is good and God the Father sees Him and loves Him with infinite intensity, but Satan is completely wicked and God abhors Him. God despises him. God has willed to create a place called hell that Satan may be tormented there forever. Friends, Satan is no ruler in hell. Satan is its worst criminal. He is being punished there, or will be, for all eternity. Satan is the enemy of God's Son. Satan is the enemy of God's people. And Satan is the enemy of all righteousness. God justly hates the devil, and if we have the mind of Christ, we will do so as well. As Abraham Kuyper once said, as regards Satan, compassion is dead, hatred is right, and love would be blameworthy. We have, among others, one particularly important reason to despise the devil and long for his ruin. Because we see here in Genesis 3 that it was He who played an integral part in bringing our race to destruction. We cannot blame the fall on Satan alone. Adam and Eve sinned of their own wills and we sinned with them, which is why humanity is rightfully under the curse. But the sin of Adam and Eve came about because of the instigation and the wicked designs of the devil. He desired our fall. He worked for our ruin. He schemed and connived so that we would be ensnared in His wicked ways, that we would break the command of God, that we would receive the penalty of death, and that all disease, disaster, disorder, and discord would come upon God's good creation. Satan takes pleasure in our despair. He takes pleasure in our depression. He takes pleasure 
particularly in our unbelief. His perverse heart is gleeful when he is able to influence men and women and even little children to commit abominable and heinous acts. His chief design has been to separate us from our greatest treasure, God Himself. He will do all He can to see that God is dishonored and despised by human beings. God is Satan's great enemy, and we're caught up in the war. Satan's desire is to get at God through us. Adam and Eve were God's precious children. Adam and Eve were especially loved by God. They bore His image. They were His special possession to turn them against their father. To bring them to destruction was Satan's way at seeking to stab Almighty God in the heart. Little did Satan know that ultimately all of this was in God's plan and would turn out to even more greatly glorify God Himself. But the point is that Satan was seeking to get at God through us. And Satan did not want to miss this golden opportunity. As Matthew Henry says, at this moment it is, as it were, as if the human race had but one neck. If Satan waits till humanity multiplies, he will have to attack each and every one to try and bring them down. But here, all of humanity is composed in a man and a woman and is particularly represented in this federal head of Adam. If he can get at Adam, the father of the human race, he can bring the whole human race into wickedness in one decisive attack. And just as he desires to get at God through Adam, so he desires to get at Adam through Eve. Notice what Satan does to tempt Eve to sin. He begins by questioning the goodness of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice what the serpent has done. He has cast God in a negative light. It's not what God told them, is it? God told them that they could eat from every tree in the garden, minus one. He encouraged them, as we saw last week in the giving of the covenant, to enjoy the garden, to receive its benefits as a blessing of love from His hands. But Satan wants Eve to doubt God's love. He wants Eve to doubt God's kindness and good intention towards her. And so he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Every sin we ever commit, brothers and sisters, is rooted in doubts about God. If you truly believe that God is a fountain of never-ending joy, that He is more than enough to satisfy your soul, that His wisdom is perfect, and that unfaithfulness to Him is genuinely bad for you, bad for others, and a reproach of His glory, if you truly believe all that, you will never sin. The problem is that when the temptation comes, we always begin to doubt something about God and His truth. That moment, we choose not to believe it. We doubt that it is actually for our good that He gives us this command. 
We doubt that God's wisdom is worth listening to. We doubt that the pleasure of God's holiness or our holiness in God's sight is better than the pleasure of the sin offered. Every sin, if you trace it down to its root, is rooted in a moment of disbelief, unbelief, doubt about something concerning who God is or something that God has said. Now, we don't know it, but it may be that Eve never actually heard the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from God Himself. We don't know. When God gives the command, He gives it to Adam before Eve has been created. And so it may be that it was Adam who came to his wife and said, Now, dear Eve, let me tell you what God told me before you were made. There's this one tree, and we're not to eat of it. So if perhaps, perhaps Eve never heard this from God himself, maybe that's why Satan chose to attack her. Because he thought maybe she was more prone to question what God had actually said. She is being tempted perhaps to call into question both the word of God and the word of her husband. Whatever the case, Eve does respond appropriately. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. That's what Satan Satan said the opposite, right? Eve comes back with the truth. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, some people want to make a lot out of the fact that Eve adds in that she nor Adam is allowed to even touch the tree. Where did Eve get that from? When we look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, where God gave the command, He does say that they are not to eat from the tree, but He does not say anything about them not touching the tree. And so some think that this shows that Satan was already succeeding against Eve, for she was already perceiving God as being more restrictive than He really was. Alternatively, it may very well have been the fact that God had told Adam and Eve not to touch the tree. And it just hasn't been recorded for us until this point. Either way, I think it's a good principle. You should not flirt with sin. If you're not supposed to eat of the tree, why would you go touch it? In the book of Proverbs, the wise father tells his son, Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. We need to learn how important it is, brothers and sisters, not to put ourselves in situations where temptations will be at their strongest. If you're in a battle, the goal is to be protected from the gunfire, not to walk right out into the middle of it. Perhaps you're struggling with the sin of gossip. Do you surround yourself with others who gossip? Do you put yourself in situations where it's easy for you to gossip? When someone begins to tell you that juicy little secret, do you stop them and ask them if you really need to know this? Or do you eat it up until you're burning inside to share it with someone else? Maybe you struggle with lust. You resolve that you're not going to have these immoral thoughts. 
But right after you've made that commitment not to have those immoral thoughts, you spend your whole evening watching a movie with that scene in it, or that television show, or just all those commercials repeating every 10 or 15 minutes with these scantily clad people on them. And by the time you turn off your TV hours later, you can't figure out why your mind is running out of control with immoral thoughts. Friends, we ought not to put ourselves in those situations. How often are we like a man struggling with drunkenness who resolves, I will never drink again, but I'll walk into the bar. I'll pick up the bottle and just look at it. I'll admire it and caress it and remember what it used to be like. Is that man going to be able to resist? Of course not. He would have been better to stay out of the bar to begin with. Can you imagine Eve taking the fruit and saying, now I know I'm not supposed to have this. I should not eat it. So I'll just look at it. I'll just smell it. And some of you in this room, that's the way you're treating sins in your life. You want to get as close to the line as you can get without crossing it. What you don't understand is that the line you're trying to not get across is a downhill line. And if you start momentum headed towards that line, you're not going to be able to stop when you get to the line but you'll tumble right on over. It is much easier to not sin when you avoid those circumstances that put you in a barrage of temptation. Think about your life right now. Think about your own present struggles. Think of that one sin that has been really hard for you to overcome. What can you do to avoid it in the future? Your heavenly Father who loves you and knows what is best for you and longs for your eternal happiness, He cries out to you, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. But notice what Satan says in verse 4. You will not surely die. Satan, the father of lies, is causing Eve to now make a choice. She has to trust somebody's word. There's the word of God, and the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And there's the word of the serpent, you will not surely die. Now we read this and know that this is God's word versus Satan's, but all she knew was this was God's word versus this animal's. Who would she believe? Friend, the fall of man came about... Because man failed to trust the revealed Word of God. And insofar as man continues to disbelieve the revealed Word of God, man will continue to plummet into ignorance and immorality and utter foolishness. When we take God at His Word and trust the Creator more than the Word of any creature, even those with PhDs, it is then that we walk in the path to life and in the path of salvation. Where do you stand in regard to God's Word this morning? Are you having to choose between God's Word and man's Word? Maybe you're like Thomas Paine, such an important man in bringing about the revolution of our country. But Thomas Paine taught like this. I'm not going to quote him, just summarizing his sentiments. You see if it sounds like yours. Well, if God ever came to me personally... And if God ever spoke to me one-on-one, I'd believe in Him. But all I have is this book called the Bible. And how do I know this is God's Word? 
If God has chosen to speak through a book, why is that book His Word and not the Book of Mormon or the Koran or some other holy book? Am I just supposed to take somebody else's word for it that this is God's Word? Am I just supposed to believe this because someone tells me so? Why can you trust that this is the Word of God to be believed more than the words of man around you? The 1689 London Confession answers that question well. I'm not going to read it, just give you some points it makes. It it points out that there's the testimony of the church and all of those Christians who can speak of how the Bible has changed their lives. It points out that there's the glorious content of the book, the historical stories, the poems, the songs, the laws, the proverbs, the prophecies, the parables, and somehow all of these very different works all come together and teach of one God and one truth and one way of salvation. The way these 66 different books written by a variety of people over many different centuries seem to fit together with one common doctrine so well gives the impression that an invisible hand was at work in putting them together. There is the way the Bible, this this one has been so true in my own life, there is the way the Bible seems to so adequately and accurately explain the human condition and to give reasons for why things are the way they are. I have found time and again that the Bible explains me better than I can explain me. It understands me better than I do. There is the fact that the Bible itself claims to be from God, which means you have to make a choice. When the Bible says that it is, God breathes. You have to believe it or not. Yet ultimately, we can only be fully persuaded and assured that the Bible is truly the Word of God by a work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to our hearts that what we are reading is in fact truth. Faith in God is a gift from God. And faith in the Word of God is a gift from God. And I pray that if there are any of you in here this morning struggling, doubting, not sure what to make of this book called the Bible, I pray that as you read it, God will give you assurance. Well, Eve now has to make a choice. Will she trust the word of God given to her or will she trust this beast of the field? Well, we'll pick up here tonight with what she does. For now, I want to press on your hearts this question. Do you really trust God? Do you? Let me ask you this. Do you truly believe that God loves you? Because that's really what the serpent was getting at here. In these first verses, did God really say that you could not eat from any tree? He wants Eve to doubt God's good intention towards her. He wants Eve not to believe that God genuinely loves her as He has claimed to. What do you believe? Do you believe? It's it's such a catchphrase, such a bumper sticker slogan. God loves you. That you might begin to think it's something small. Or just doubt it altogether. Do you believe God loves you? What more could He do to convince you? What more could He do? He made you, didn't He? And despite the fact that you have rebelled against Him and lived in open hostility towards Him, He has not yet brought Himself to judge you. He is so patient, so patient, wanting you to see His love, wanting you to repent and return to Him. He sent His Son, His very self, to the earth to enter into your condition and to bear the hell that we deserved if we believe. Who else has ever borne hell for you? 
Who else has ever sacrificed so much or done so much for your happiness and your welfare? And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. As the song says, He gave His life. What more could He give? Oh, how He loves you. Oh, how He loves me. Oh, how He loves you and me. Do you believe it? Or has the serpent convinced you that God does not truly care for you? Has the serpent beguiled you into believing that God wants you to fail? That God is looking for every opportunity to tell you no? That God is like a grumpy old man in the sky with his lightning bolts ready to strike you the moment he can? Friends, the choice before Eve is a choice before you. Do you trust that God genuinely loves you? Answer it right now. And if by the grace of God you can say, yes, I believe God truly loves me and cares for me, then I have to ask you another question. Do you believe He truly knows what is best? Do you believe He truly knows what is best for you? Do you truly believe that He knows better than you or me what will make us happiest in the end? Do you have childlike faith? The faith that my daddy knows best and will take care of me. What more can God do to get you to trust His Word? He's given you story after story of how those who trusted in Him were brought into glory and happiness. He's given you story after story of how those who went their own way ended in pain and despair. There are thousands of examples living around us every day. Should not the very fact that God is God and you are not not cause you to trust Him. Do you trust that God loves you? Do you trust that He knows what is best? And if you believe both of those truths, that He loves you and that He knows what is best, why are you slow to obey His commands? God tells you to care for the poor. Are you doing it? God calls you to care for orphans. Are you doing it? God calls you to speak of Him to the lost. Are you doing it? God calls you to actively support the work of missions. Are you doing it? God calls you to memorize Scripture. Are you doing it? God calls you to give yourself in prayer to Him. Are you doing it? Don't tell me that you trust God when in point after point after point where He in His love for you and in His knowledge of what's good for you says, Dear child, do this. This is for your benefit. And you say, No. On this point, and this point, and this point. No. Does God know what is best for you or not? And if He does, why are we so slow to obey? God has so much to teach us about our worship together. He has so much to teach us as a church about our fellowship together. He has so much to teach us about outreach together. But it means nothing if we're not going to be doers of the Word, but just hearers only. What wickedness is in us that time after time we refuse to trust the God who is so worthy of our trust? What wickedness would cause us to slap away of the hands, to slap away the hands of the one who longs to embrace us, lead us, and help us know how to walk? Do you truly trust God? Your eternal destiny depends upon it.
and your life will be the evidence of whether you do or whether you don't. Pray that God will deepen your love for Him and your trust for Him this morning. Pray that when you are tempted to choose between heeding God's Word and the Word of the serpent, you will trust the Word of God and imitate your Savior crushing the head of the serpent underneath of your feet. There's so much more to say. We'll pick up tonight. Would you pray with me?